Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. So Christina Dreiza is somebody who I was following her writing on the Joseph Campbell Foundation website. She writes about mythology. And then I watched her TED Talk, and I'm like, wow, she's deep. She's Lithuanian, but she lived many, many years in Adelaide, Australia. She's lived in New York City, in Tokyo. She's recognized as one of the world's top female futurists and is also an archetypal consultant and author. She's always been fascinated by people's patterns, and she feels we're pattern beings in a pattern universe. She kind of thinks it's all connected. Um, she explores archetypes, mythology. She helps bring it into the workplace and help people understand how the collective unconscious and their expression within our psyches, society, and the media are taking place all the time. And so we have quite a deep conversation where I ask her all my crazy questions about what is the psyche and what is the soul and what's the point of Greek mythology and why is it meaningful and why do we need to study it? And meanwhile, I've been in my own <laughs> Jungian group studying Greek mythology, so it's been a, a really fun, tangential opportunity to get to meet Christina while all this work was going on on my end. So I hope that you listen in and really enjoy what thinking about archetypal psychology might bring to our listening. Kristen Adrija. So I want to tell you how I found you. I have been deeply entrenched in reading about mythology and Carl Jung, even though I have been a therapist for 16 years, studied transpersonal psychology. I never got into Jung until the last year because I think I've been initiated. <laughs> and your work is so blowing my mind. So I'm really excited to get to talk with you and, and learn to be a better connector in our, in our conversation. When I was making notes to talk with you, I wrote three things at the top of my paper. Here's what they are. Paradox, patterns, and futurism mm -hmm. were the sort of three standout words. Wow. And I want to start with futurism because I have no clue what a futurist is who studies archetypal patterning and mythology. So mm -hmm. can you tell me, help me place you and how you're, how you're a futurist? What are you going to help us find in the future? Well, I guess I'd actually say more like I'm an ex-futurist. Um, um, what I did do for the majority of my career until my love of archetypes and mythology um, in a way took precedence. But um, I studied Aboriginal cosmology at university. And so I think that really influenced my um, relationship to time. So I do feel past 
present and future as one. Um, and and I think just all that happened was I, I went too far in the future and, and I've recently gone um, too far back with my interest in constellation work and intergenerational trauma. So I, I feel I'm only now... Um, now coming back back to the present, I mean, I think some people say that they're nowists and things like that. But uh, uh, for me, it's much more just how do we have a um, getting out of a linear consciousness to one that is much more spherical and and holographic and um, and not just thinking that all life breathes together, but really sensing it. Because I guess what I did learn as a futurist is that the future is not thought into being, it's actually sensed into being. So rather than this um, Cartesian, I think, therefore I am, I think it's far more I sense, therefore I am. Beautiful. And you, you know what, when I hear you say that, I mean, it, it makes me think of how psychology has even gotten very sort of split in treating matters of the soul with the thought or with mind mm. and that we're not sensing. Um, and I really, I think that's profound. Is there a particular moment in time though, that you made this switch from going zoom into the future where you went, wait a minute, I need to go back and look in the past. Like did something happen in your life or is there a story that anchored you in that shift? Yeah, definitely. Um, gosh, I think it was about two, 2016. Um, I attended the Joseph um, Campbell Foundation's Mythological Toolbox Play Shop um, at the Esalen Institute. And um, every year for decades, Campbell's been celebrating his um, birthday by spending this, this week at Esalen and the tradition continues. So um, with those that actually helped him create the magic during his lifetime. And while I was there, we were really dared to revision ourselves and participate in this, or not just one, but many improvisational death and rebirth rituals. And it was really through this process of mythic immersion and asking ourselves, you know, who, who are you and, and how do you reemerge? And, and I think, you know, I, I'm really deeply intrigued by how myths influence our lives. And, and uh, of course, Jung wrote that the most important question anyone can ask is what myth am I living? And, and, and from that, I guess, also being really drawn to Goethe's words that, you know, he, he who cannot draw on 3000 years is living from hand to mouth. And I feel that this is even more relevant now in this age of fake news and sound bites. Um, but I, I think that was really a turning point for myself. Um, and then I, I did have, um, when I went to see a, a healer, um, an, an image or a vision presented me, which I didn't know at that time, was of um, the myth of Persephone and Hades. And, and that's what my new book is about. Yeah, I watched your, your TED Talk and it was such a, a powerful TED Talk. I think it came up in my next therapy session. It was sort of serendipitous that I watched it and then it was completely relevant to the client. So if you ever wonder if you have an impact, you do. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like, wow. Um, what are some of the archetypes that you've discovered or the myths that you live by? If that's too personal, you can maybe tell me some of the myths that you've discovered a lot of people that you work with live by. Well, maybe I might just take a step back and just so that we're all on the, the same page with the, the listeners of what archetypes are, because so often it, it some people are aka what? Aka who? Like, you know, so um, for me- I appreciate you catching yeah. me on that because I'm so immersed in it. I can't see the forest through the trees yeah. anymore. <laughs> so to me, they're like uh, archetypes are just a, this, a symbolic language of the universe. And I think they really are a map to help us read life. And, and you know, they are said to be these psychic power patterns dwelling in the deeper layers of the unconscious. But 
for me personally, I really experience them as a system of, of living consciousness. You know, they're these universal patterns of power that drive us. And, you know, these patterns become verbs, not nouns, and they, they penetrate and influence the quality of our lives. And, and they are relevant even in the commercial world, not just in the therapeutic world, because they do enable us to access deeper levels of insight and wisdom and creative energy that that does exist beyond the limits of the rational linear mind. And, and like Jung said, like all the most powerful ideas in history go back to archetypes. But to keep it really, really simple, I just say it like archetypes are patterns. So, you know, being lost in the forest is an archetype, a pattern as much as the ritual of marriage is. Um, you know, there's universal patterns of the human psyche, you know, patterns of instinct or impulse or survival or fate or destiny and soul. So, you know, I've always, uh, fate and destiny, I think that's why I really got into to, to futures work. Um, but I think it's also important just to say that archetypes don't just structure behavior. They're, they're influencing our imagination, our perception, our ideas, our choices. Um, and they don't really define us, but rather it's more that they, they reveal us. And, you know, what I guess has been um, a dominant, in a way, myth for me growing up has been um, the ugly duckling. Um, it's, it's, I, I think going back to Jung's, what myth am I living? It's, it's an element of that. And obviously an element of Persephone's journey too. Mm, beautiful. Yeah. I love the way Dr. Estes treats that myth of the ugly duckling and women who run with the wolves. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I, I definitely have a lot of underlines in her writing, um, of that myth in particular. Yeah. I, um, you know, there's, I, I think that for me, it took me a long time to get into my body and out of my head. Yeah. And so some of Jung's stuff was just too mystical mm -hmm. for me. And I think for a lot of people, but now where I am and partly why I wanted to have this, I'm going to be, I'm going to be really transparent with everybody listening. I think I'm proselytizing a little bit for magic. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. But how do we get over this threshold that has really sort of split us into this? We're thinking machines. We're not sensing, sensing beings. And how do we even get folks that sort of are looking at profit and loss statements to consider magic and myth and soul and metaphor. And you said symbolic language of the universe. I mean, that's, that's a big statement. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how we, how and why we might want to change that. Well, I, I think it's important to remember we're always in the psyche, not the psyche in us. You know, psyche is our field of awareness and mediates our perception of the world. And and myths are really asking us to look for what is metaphorically meaningful. And, you know, while the stories may not always be technically true outside, they are true inside. They're really descriptive of our unconscious processes. They link our inner and outer worlds. And when we engage mythic material, it allows for an encounter with the unconscious and connection to the deeper cultural forms in, in society. And again, if, if, we, if we wanna get out of our heads, we can also say that you know, archetypes help us to know and respect the patterns of our environment, of the seasons, of the flora and fauna, of the creative dynamics of life. You know, the earth doesn't have inexhaustible material resources and our relationship to the planet must change because we are connected to the web of life. I mean, what isn't sacred on this earth that doesn't require our awe and our appreciation and our tenderness. And I feel that we're really being directed to become conscious of who we are, of our inner narrative and how we bring it out into the collective. And that we must also extend that consciousness into the biosphere because 
how do we live within the natural codes of both the solar and the lunar, of the summer and the winter? And, and again, it's why I was initially drawn to the myth of Persephone and Demeter and the Eleusinian mysteries because of the seasonal motifs, um, as much as for the illumination on the cycles and transitions of life, you know, like maiden mother crone um, and the realms of the upper world and the underworld. But I think, you know, to truly know ourselves, the notisotum, you know, whether we yeah, you know, whether it's at that, that you know, Delphi or, or what we see in the matrix, you know, to know ourselves, we've got to know the gods and the goddesses as each of them structures a style of consciousness. And it's really around these are metaphors for our actions and styles of existence. And I, and again, I think we're mythically deprived, you know, I, I feel that we we need to learn how to develop an archetypal eye and a mythic consciousness and a poetic language and a symbolic lens. And myth is really psyche in its own disguise. It's a way psyche can be seen. And what myths do is they enable us to view certain movements in our psyches, like also both the sufferings and the successes, but that it's not also that there's answers, but they're providing us this imaginative background from which we can explore and traverse because they're providing us with images of psyche speaking itself. And I think really the question for us to ask today is, can we cultivate a consciousness that perceives life in mythic terms? Mm. Gosh, there's, I, I mean, I have to listen to this a hundred times. <laughs> I want to go back and actually talk about, because as people hear the word psyche, when you said we are in the psyche, psyche is not in us. How do you define psyche? Yeah, I mean, for me, psyche is soul. Um, and and maybe it might be good to kind of almost just say also a little bit about there's aspects of archetypes. Um, and, and I think to be just to be able to round it out, but it's saying that also that when we talk about psyche, it's often people um, would say, um, oh no, let me use a, a parallel. Sometimes people would say, oh, I can't wait to go um, into nature on the weekend or, uh, and it's like, well, what are you standing on right now? <laughs> you know, do you know, it's, it's, it's like this idea that we've, we've perfected this idea of nature of, okay, I only want it to be an Instagrammable sunset, or um, I actually have to um, make a weekend trip of it. Instead of, it's like nature is in our, it's in the wind as much as it's the flora in our guts. I think it's that same way also with psyche. And, and when we're working with archetypes, we're, we're noticing that, yeah, they're neutral, but they also have this light and shadow quality. So they can be create, creative and destructive. So, you know, like the mother can be expressed, obviously, as the good mother as much as the devouring mother. It's that tension of perfect equilibrium. And again, I think it's coming back to Jung's line, you can either be good or whole, but not both. And I think so often in the social media culture, it's like we only want the light. Um, and I know you're also interested in shadow, so maybe I'll just touch on that now, which is that when the term shadow is used in regards to archetypes, it refers to all that's unknown or yet to be known in us. It's it's not meant to imply negative or dark or bad or wrong. It's it's often the unknown parts of ourselves that cause us the most chaos in our lives. And, and when we can unmask the, the shadow aspects of ourselves, we can harness that power consciously. And I think getting back to my other point about how we're almost archetypally starved at the moment is because archetypes aren't literal, they're symbolic and metaphoric. And to make meaning, we can't enter through logic, we must go through symbols. 
And so it's through entering the symbolic realm that we really gain access to the power of, of archetypes. And, and just, God, so this doesn't sound too much like a lecture, just quickly, the third point is that archetypes really, they're, they're ancient, impersonal, and universal, but they become personalized when our individual psyche engages them. So it's more impersonal in the sense that it's not like... Um, it's not like you're the saboteur, but rather there's currently you're engaging a pattern of sabotage. You're not an addict, but the pattern of addiction is alive or animated within you. And, and that while you may be struggling to place you individually, um, struggling to place a value on your worth and give your soul currency, so does everyone else with the prostitute archetype. And so I think that what um, why I feel that this work is so important at the moment is that it's the shared experience of being a human being, you know, and, and our lives are lived on, on the back of something greater than our own personal days and our days of our lives. Soap opera drama. Yeah. It, it feels like it's welcoming in a kind of wholeness by placing us in this larger collective space, mm -hmm. but also allowing us to really embrace parts of ourselves that we're spending a lot of life force actively trying not to embrace, you know, absolutely is what I'm kind of yeah. hearing. And, and, and I can, and I, and I wanted to ask the applicability too. I mean, it seems to me like when you engage in the ways that you're describing that it's not just for lack of a better term, woo-woo, that it actually helps us build a better community, build better economic systems, build businesses that don't harm but help because we're actually looking at things in a more systemic, complex way. Is that is that your is that your hope or is that where you think this can yeah. go or am I being too mechanistic no, yeah because it's almost like again if our lives are lived on the back of these bigger stories when the personal meets the mythical we can finally then catch a glimpse of how these mythic stories bear archetypal truths containing you know immense wisdom on the cycles of the natural world as much as our own physical emotional and psychic participation in these cycles and and I think that it's um Again, we're, we're starved of wisdom. We're, we're orphans of wisdom at the moment. And I think how do we birth this desire to wear glasses of the mythos, um, not solely the logos, so to engage these metaphorical, not just the literal aspects of life. And, and I really feel that when we can think mythically and sense archetypally, we can better understand our shared humanity, yet honor and appreciate the diverse ways we each live and, and make meaning because the closest we, with the um, unconscious we can get to language is poetry. Otherwise it's symbols, it's images, it's dreams, it's myths and metaphors. But so often, again, if I bring in my work with the future, it's it's almost done through the, the, the left brain, um, not the, the, cap the capabilities to bring the visioning um, uh, capacities of us through because I've always thought that the best futurists are actually filmmakers because they actually give us a vision and a, and a world to actually dream and live into. Yeah. Artists for sure have been, you know, someone asked me recently, you know, do you feel like we've lost the capacity to connect? And I said, well, some of us have, but I've never had more profound experiences connecting with people who don't have a house. Mm connecting with people who are artists, mm -hmm. right? Or connecting with the weirdos, I said. Yeah. 
It's all the folks that are outside of the conforming mainstream that haven't lost the art of human connection. And somehow it's the, and and to me, I think it's because of what you just said. I feel like they're connected still to psyche or they're, they're, Mm. they're more in touch with symbol and psyche. And I once asked this um, person that didn't have a home and he said, why would I want to have a home? He just looked at me because why would I want to live in a house? Mm. And I went, and the way that he spoke with such conviction and clarity, he was in another realm. And I, I felt like I had been sitting with a shaman mm-hmm. and somebody else might think I was crazy, but I'm like, no, he goes, he said, Tracy, I wake up under the stars mm. every morning. Do you? <laughs> wow. 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 And I think hearing stories like this, we, we realize, you know, um, you know, in many spiritual traditions, they say like the stars used to speak to us, but we've forgotten to speak back to them, you know, and I think that it's that, how do, how do that, that all life breathes together or like Thich Nhat Hanh, the, the inter, the interbeingness, you know, the, in, as he says, you know, the interconnectedness of us all. And I feel that, um, again, it's, it's we aren't alone, but we share the common experiences of being a human being. And again, it's also important to note that we're never going to be more powerful than a pattern until we realize why our psyche recruited it. So it's it's understanding why in my destiny might there be the hermit archetype, but not in someone else's or the healer or the trickster or, or, or the liberator. And, and again, I think it's also coming back to... Um, this work is not about energizing the duality, like living in a home is good and not living in one is bad, right? It's, it's, we're always in this spectrum and we're not always, I think also it's important to note in the solar of our, ourselves, um, but in the synthesis of these inner and outer worlds. So just like the goddess Persephone, she's both life's daughter and death's bride. And the god Apollo is sunshine and clarity as well as dark and wrathful. So we ventilate our psyches by allowing all parts to be. And I feel that that's really the best way to approach healing and metamorphosis is from this alchemical and, and, and mystical perspective. And again, back to, to know thyself, the person that knows that, that that's where they want to lay their head each night, knows themselves. And in that is a... Um, a great um, uh, peace and, and oneness that actually comes because they're not fighting. I, I sometimes say archetypes are what you cannot not not do. So sometimes like you'll go to someone's house and there's always a spread of food. That person cannot but not but not be a host because it's in their blood. And, and I think it's so important that we're spending so much of our energies going against what our true nature is. And if we can just say, ah, this is me and these archetypal patterns are my destiny then it almost gives us um, the strength to not really care what the days of this world think or, 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 or believe or say about us. It's, it's not even, um, doesn't even come into dis- discussion. I mean, there were just so many like things there that I could quote. <laughs> you know, I'm one of the things that I was poking around on when I was preparing for our conversation today was something that you'd written for the Joseph Campbell Foundation website about the underworld, because you know that I'm into the shadow Mm -hmm. stuff right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to read this piece of yours. You said the underworld is the most fertile ground for our metamorphosis, acting as an alchemical vessel. Times of solitude and inner desolation invite us to explore what it is that must change in us and take another form. 
So much depends on our capacity to relinquish harmful and obsolete patterns of behaviors, for we know that every attempt to deal with challenges in outmoded ways will ultimately fail us. But here's the piece that I think I really want to highlight. You said, without engaging ritually with this realm, the psyche remains flat and one dimensional. Mm. Mm. Where are these rituals? (laughs) What are the rituals? Because we can talk about this and we can grab a book on mythology and it can go right into our left brain. But what I hear you calling for is a kind of engagement ritualistically with psyche so that we can be whole human beings as we're engaging with one another in the earth. But I'm hearing you say it requires us to engage with ritual. And coming from a very fundamentalist religious background, I hear ritual and I get a little titillated and a little off put at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, ritual is, is almost anything done with intention. And, and so uh, it's almost like, and again, gosh, the, the words are on the tip of my tongue, but I can't remember, but it's almost Campbell would, uh, God, I won't bring his name to it. I'm just kind of, because I don't want to get it wrong, but I'm paraphrasing something like you can like elevate um, like an ordinary white plate to, to the, to almost becoming a chalice by the intention and your, almost your own personal consecration of it. And, and so I think it is that aspect of um, for myself, you know, the, the ritual that I'm very fortunate um, being on the Curonian spit at the moment that within um, it's a, a, a long narrow peninsula on the Baltic Sea coast where I can see both the sunrise and the sunset only a 10 minute walk apart from each other. And, and so the, the ritual of opening and closing each day and where sometimes people say I've lost faith, you know, I've lost faith, whether it's in, in say, um, government or, or um, the church or what it is. To me, it's almost the, uh, I find such faith in the reoccurrence of the rising sun. And so when I feel let down or by, betrayed by the mortal world, um, there's just something in, in the recurring flawlessness of the rising and the setting sun that allows me to... Um, richly find faith that I, I, I can't often kind of find in, in the, the um, almost if we want to kind of say the horizontal world. And it, it sustains and nourishes me in a way that a book never can. And I think that that's why, you know, my, my first book, Grace in the Wind, and, and this new one now is, is the, always about, uh, always novels and always, um, fiction and allegory and parables because there's so much truth in them and and I think we're just in this culture at the moment of five steps to seven successful things leaders do before breakfast I mean god if you were really successful you wouldn't read any of that trash right so I I just think it's almost like we've um we've lost almost again the circumference and I think it's really interesting Hestia as an archetype of the the hearth of which the the the, the circle and the wholeness but also that she gave up her position in the pantheon and it's almost like we've almost lost our um our right our right perspective with with how we engage in the world and with the world yeah yeah I'm totally with you on that so if somebody is looking at those articles five steps to right mm-hmm. or they're consumed by the latest news of the day or 
you know, I guess they might come at this and go, but you're, you're sort of blissing out on a cloud by thinking that the sunset is going to somehow change my reality. I need that five steps article. And how do, how do we differentiate between blissing out on a cloud and saying, no, no, this isn't quite that. This is, this is actually the opposite. This is widening our embrace. I can bring it into a totally commercial perspective. So, um, Again, I mean, I still do futures work occasionally. So I had to speak at a conference on the four influential archetypes for 2020. And this is January. We, you know, and um, it hadn't yet been reported in um, Wuhan was almost just on on the horizon. And I said, you know, it's going to be the hermit, the healer, the trickster and the liberator. And then when I, the Journal of Future Studies asked me to write an article about it and, and it was then that I actually kind of was like, oh my gosh, here we are in externally imposed isolation. We've got all these disruptive, destructive health issues. There's the chaos and the fake news and also the tyranny. And I was like, okay, but again, if we were, the way that I was reading it last year before it hit us here in Europe in March was to me, when I saw the hermit, it, it wasn't, you know, what what we've been in, which is really an enforced um, isolation. And, and again, it's it's it's. Do I see it as an internal prison, or do can I turn it into my inner monastery? But I just could actually see that how turning inward was necessary for growth. You know, like of course, every year has a winter. Every project has a cocoon stage, a cocoon stage, so that this hibernation and solitude and introspection and reflection, really, the capacity to create a hermitage for oneself, is so crucial for our expansion. And how do we find that silent space? You know, outside of trivial busy work or worry, and can we come instead in touch with the treasures that only silence can bring? So it's like. Again, the the uh, it's almost um, finding this dialogue like an lemniscape between the inner and outer side of the world. And and when I was feeling into the healer, it was like again not not just about uh, you know um, COVID nineteen. It was more that healing is not just about illness, but about how do we make whole? How do we come into balance? You know, how do we bring a healing lens to all the many aspects of our lives and the the collective systems that require repair? How do we make healing choices, you know, holistic, interconnected choices that honor ourselves, our communities and our beloved planet? To me, this is this is real commercial work that I actually do with clients. And and just while I'm on the roll, I might as well just while I can remember what the other two were, the trickster, you know. This is the pattern that exposes illusion. It unveils our greatest insecurities. It, it teaches us that everything contains its opposite. And as you um, said at the beginning of the call, paradox is the trickster's calling card. And it assists us in breaking down conventions and undoing these structures that we no longer want or need. And how can we, like you said, okay, how do we not bliss out on this, this, this cloud, right? How do we actually perceive the trickster as a messenger and what's the guidance it can offer us to our previous blindness? And again, calling on like the, the fourth archetype I spoke about, which last year, which was the liberator, you know, freedom, hope, courage. What are we being held hostage to? What keeps us from rising to our potential? And how do we liberate ourselves from fear? What is the rebellion that is required of us in this dark hour? And can we embody the ideals of truth, of beauty and justice? And and again, okay, how do we ground this? Okay, the liberator asks us to free ourselves and the collective from all forms of oppression. And again, in a micro and macro way, if that's not living in the here and now, then um, I don't know, to me, that's actually very grounded, real embodied spiritual work. Yeah, I feel like what you're describing is is really what 
we had the opportunity to explore with COVID. If, you know, if we didn't just get caught up in the news cycle that said that we were only going to be depressed mm-hmm. and feel lonely, but actually that maybe we do cultivate an inner monastery. And I feel like I've had both, right? I've had both experiences, but had been really intense experiences of wanting a particular kind of liberation, which it's an interesting kind of thing where it comes from wholeness. You know, I know for me, I've had this opportunity to look at how have I been living my life where I haven't actually welcomed all of who I am in? And how has that led me to feel utterly oppressed? And how has that led me to utterly oppress others? Right. And it's just, and, you know, I had this weird experience a few weeks ago where I felt so slow. I could, I just wanted to sleep all day and I wasn't depression. And then I would go lay in the fields. I live near some vineyards. And so I'll just, it was sunny a few weeks ago and then it snowed last week. And I felt so, I felt some sweetness for a couple of days and then a ton of grief. And I started to feel, oh, this is my grief for the earth. I could feel it coming in. I'm like, oh man, once you start feeling all this stuff and welcoming these parts of you in, it's harrowing because you will feel some pain too. And I suspect this is partly why some people don't do it because you don't just get to, you, you, you go, it's like what you'd said about Persephone. You are going to go to the underworld. You're going to go hang out with Hades for a while. Right. Yeah. And I think trauma so often occurs because we haven't been accompanied and, and it's that accompaniment is key that, that, that holding and witnessing. And often we, we, we haven't had that. So we can't actually, the feelings within us can't be received either within mm-hmm. ourselves or again, witnessed by, you know, someone with almost this, um, like a holy witness. And, and again, mm-hmm. it's, it's how do we accompany ourselves rather than it's, of course, it's much easier to, to numb out, but let's not shame ourselves for downing the bottle of wine and watching Netflix because our brain craves story. And, and I, I guess my, my suggestion is yes, you know, we do need the, the Netflix stories, but, but can we also turn our gaze to some of those larger mythic stories that uh, contain some universal wisdom? Because there's nothing to me than the myths that really reflect the true, the, the truth of being a human being and, as I said, can we lift our gaze a little bit wider than, than our laptop screens at the moment? Beautiful. And I love this. This is perfect as we sort of wrap up our conversation here, because I think that this phrase, holy witness, is so much of what we've begun doing on the sidewalk. Because people will tell us stories because we're strangers. There's something that almost makes it holier. There's a safety because we're unknown to this person. So they're like, there's no risk for me to share with you something incredibly weird that I might not feel so comfortable telling my best friend. And so as we come to a close and we could, you and I could just go on for hours. (laughs) Um, I might just have to come have an archetypal session with you. I already know that that's in the cards for me. Um, I wanted to get out of the way and invite you to speak directly to these other holy witnesses, if you will, that sit on sidewalks around the world, not to help people or fix people, but really to bear witness and hold space for them. Mm-hmm. What would you want to offer them in terms of a wish or words of wisdom? Gosh, I mean, of course, you know, go back to, to Jung, you know, what myth am I living? Um, but beyond that, it's um, when 
we are in a psychological winter and for many people that 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 involves a depression and anxiety and and what the myths have taught me and the seasons have taught me is that spring will always follow winter joy will always follow grief that even if i don't want the sun to come up it actually will and and i really like that u2 song um stuck in a moment you you can't get out of and and sometimes it's almost can can you just trust that it's almost not in your control but the joy will visit again and the sun will will rise again and and the spring will come again and that that you are held within the deeper rhythms and seasons and and cycles of being a human being as much as the seasons and the rhythms and the cycles of the cosmos beautiful beautiful what's on the horizon for you where can we find you ah uh, yes uh, so so um of course if someone wants to watch the the TED, tedx on 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 why archetypes and and mythology are, are still relevant today are relevant today um but my website so um k r i s t i n a d r y z a.com and um yeah of course you know and i love myself speaking archetype um so if there was a question or something that got raised here please please feel free to to get in touch wonderful and we're going to put a bunch of information in the show notes and i'm i'm just thrilled that we could share that i could share you having sort of been fangirling on you for a little bit here with our listeners around the world so thank you so much ah this was wonderful all right thanks everyone for listening and be well Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.